major changes announced to ICBC yesterday. We'll dive into all the details this morning and discuss a whole lot more. On the panel, Global BC's Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman. Later in the show, one of the leading authorities in ICBC in this province, Richard McCandless. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to a sunny Kamloops. Wildfire smoke uh, beating a little bit of a retreat this morning, so that's nice. Uh, pleasure to welcome Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Shane. It sounds pretty hot up there. Yeah, it was 40 degrees yesterday. <laughs> we broke a 120-year-old weather record in Kamloops, and oh my oh. God, was it hot. How, how many Cokes did you drink, Shane, to stay cool? Well, Richard, it was so hot, I actually considered drinking water for the first time in a long time. Oh, no! <laughs> I know that, Shane. Yeah, I know. Tough times. Uh, okay, guys, uh, I know David Eby's written that letter to Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, that's definitely newsworthy. We're going to get into that later in the show, but I think everybody wants to hear uh, what you guys think of ICBC changes yesterday. Uh, we had a lot of talk leading up to this thing, uh, lots of uh, repeated phrasing, uh, good drivers will pay less, bad drivers will pay more. Uh, we finally got the details on these major changes. Keith, uh, what do you think? major changes. The biggest changes I think we've seen to the rate structure in decades, uh, but it, they mask the fact that there's a rate increase coming um, next year and the year after that and the year after that. And those rate increases will wipe out, I think, uh, all the stats the government provided yesterday about how uh, 66% of the drivers will pay less uh, because the fine print was based less compared to today's rates. Well, that's true, but today's, these, these changes don't take effect until, they don't start to take effect until next September, after the next rate increase takes effect. So you just throw out all those stats the government gave yesterday. They're, they're basically meaningless. You've got to base the changes on what the next rate increase is going to be. And David Eby, I asked him twice yesterday, we will rule out a double-digit increase. He wouldn't do that. I think a clue of what's coming is in the ICBC's three-year fiscal plan, which I showed last night, that they are expecting to collect uh, a, roughly a 9 to 10% increase in premiums every year for the next three years. Some of that will come from, uh, from new drivers uh, joining the insurance system, about 2% of that. But I, I basically boil it down to a, expect at least a 7% increase next year, the year after that, and the year after that. And you just apply that to what you're paying today. That's going to at least flatline or wipe out the discounts you're going to get if you're a good driver under the new system. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I was just uh, talking to David Eby before the show got rolling. Uh, and he <laughs> he said to me, well, we've promised not to uh, table 30% increases. So I guess anything uh, 29% and under is on the table. Uh, Richard, uh, we I don't know. There's, there's this perception you build up in your head when you hear this repeated, you know, bad drivers are going to pay more, good drivers are going to pay less. So there was no numbers attached, but you kind of get a perception of, okay, I'm going to get a big discount. You know, I've, I've been driving, say, for 20 years. So, I mean, even if people get like a, a $50 discount or a $70 discount or something, I mean, is that enough to really make a difference? I don't know. It depends. It's all about expectations, right, Shane? So you mentioned the expectation when people have been hearing this is to receive a pretty substantial discount. That's not coming. And when Keith mentions that the rates are going to be going up over the next few years, everybody's going to be paying more. So imagine the bad drivers, how hard they're going to be hit. Not only are they going to be paying those rate increases, they're also going to have to be paying more based on all these changes that were made. So there were these scenarios that the government uh, put out as part of the press package yesterday uh, in terms of if you are, and the one I think that applies to a lot of people in Kamloops is... 
you know, two parents driving and one kid in the house who's just started driving. Both parents have experience. The kid is inexperienced. Their rates, based on the current system, will go up something like 500 between three and $500 a year based on where they live in the province and how often they drive that vehicle, if they drive it recreational or for work. And so that's a pretty substantial hit to a family's budget and maybe make it very prohibitive uh, to have their child on the insurance and have them driving. You know, maybe they send the little guy or girl on the bus at, at 16, 17, 18 years old uh, because the family just can't afford uh, to have them on the car insurance. It's, it's, that's one of the places where people are hit really hard here is with inexperienced drivers in the household. It also can be applied to people who are, you know, getting into driving late or have just moved to British Columbia. Uh, your experience numbers in some cases uh, reset when you move to the province. Mm. An experienced driver elsewhere, uh, I think in some cases you're not credited for all that experience. So that that's going to have a big impact to people. As you know, tons of people are moving to Kamloops and everywhere else in British Columbia, so those people are going to be hit especially hard too. So I think there is a massive mess at ICBC. Rate structure is broken. Fraud out of control. Crashes are out of control is doing the best it can in a horrible, horrible... But you, know, you know, Shane, the, yeah. the uh, uh, changes announced yesterday are, according to David Eby, revenue neutral. So they do yeah. nothing to fix the fiscal dumpster fire, as Eby describes the finances at ICBC. Uh, they have not, th- these changes have nothing to do with, with uh, altering the finances of ICBC. Those, that, that $1.3 billion loss uh, and ongoing losses have to be made up through the things that were already announced, through the cap on soft tissue injuries, the clamp down on litigation, uh, higher penalties for distracted driving, and the rate increase. So uh, the financial mess at ICBC had no, was not impacted yesterday whatsoever. It's going to come through your rate increase. And not to mention just rate increases, Keith. There's, I mean, you dig through the nuances of this thing, uh, and uh, they're going to face lots of other potential charges out there. Uh, Richard talked about, you know, young drivers in the family. There's this thing about uh, submitting a list of other people who might drive your car, uh, and then you, you know, now there's going to be this uh, this sort of stranger driver um, aspect of insurance starting at fifty dollars and or more, and that's so you can lend a car to your friend. I mean, there's nuances in this that's going to easily wipe out any kind of savings in the 50 to 100 dollar range oh yeah no we're uh first of all the savings are, are rather minor but they can they're going to get eaten up uh big time with all the add-ons that you're going to be requesting and those uh additional drivers are just one example it's interesting icbc uh prided itself for years at, at eliminating age discrimination from uh, the insurance system because most private insurers uh, uh, factor in age uh, because young drivers uh, have higher crashes because they're, they're inexperienced. The ICBC never had that as part of the system. Now, without actually using the phrase, they are now allowing, uh, they're, they're building in age discrimination. They're not calling it uh, uh, young drivers, they're calling inexperienced drivers. Well, you know, if you're 16 and getting your driver's license, you're inexperienced. You're not likely to be an inexperienced driver if you're 40. So for the first time uh, since its inception, ICBC is incorporating age discrimination into its uh, rate structure. 
Now, the other the other aspect of this I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on, and, and ICBC is going to have to do a lot of work once this thing's adopted to educate people, I think. But uh, in the changes yesterday, I note that uh, when they transition to this new insurance regime, uh, claims histories will only go back to March 1st, 2017. Any crash prior will not factor into the new premium calculation, which I would think means a complete reset on sort of how you calculate who is a safe driver, Richard. Yeah, I think... There will be clean record sheets, but yes, it will cleanse a lot of uh, infractions from people's records is my best sense. There's a lot, and you mentioned the communications on all this. It was very clear yesterday. Uh, we received a briefing uh, from the head of ICBC and also spoke to Attorney General David Eby uh, and uh, ICBC Chair Joy McPhail as well. And they are, you know, there's a lot to go here in this process. Well, Keith mentioned it's not coming into effect until next September, uh, and then it's rolled out over a huge number of years. And ICBC is launching uh, a whole new website dedicated to the rate changes so people can find out information about how this will affect them. I was also told yesterday that ICBC has hired uh, or, or is moving a new communications person basically just to deal with the media on questions about the rate changes because they're expecting that it will be that substantial. So, mm -hmm. you know, what ICBC wants to do is if the public has a question around, you know, this is my situation, how does it affect me? They want to provide those answers because with so many changes being made, there's less lumping in terms of uh, people paying in the same rate structure. There are factors around distance driven, um, it, the type of car, the city you live in, your previous crashes, your experience. So they want to ensure that the public has all the information possible for what they're going to pay and what impacts that will have on, on their bottom line before this is actually implemented. And the nuances are interesting because, I mean, you look at uh, if you move to driver-based, and I think that uh, that's actually a good move, but uh, what about, like, I don't know, Operation Red Nose? Uh, what about you go to a restaurant and you get a valet to park your car? I mean, there's going to be weird little nuances they're going to have to answer for in this entire thing. And the other well, the other one that caught my eye that I think is going to be potentially interesting uh, is this sort of reassessment of the rate classes and territories data. I guess it has yeah. been updated in 10 years. So, uh, you know, I pay less car insurance in Kamloops than I did in Metro Vancouver. It's, it's, there's more cars and roads and the, high, the crash risk is higher down there. Well, Kamloops is a bigger city than it was 10 years yep. ago. So will we see some of that wiped out? Yeah, yeah you're going to see you're going to see the gap narrow uh, between um, between Kamloops and Metro Vancouver uh, because you're right the the uh, there always has been a geographical difference on your on your insurance rates depending on where you live but it's based on the 2007 uh, crash data and now that's going to be updated to 2018. And so every city and most cities have gotten bigger. Uh, and if you, uh, particularly urban areas, are going to are going to pay uh, pay more. Uh, but you know, I would think Metro Vancouver's rates might grow as well because it's gotten a lot bigger since 2007. There's more there's more crashes oh, yeah. there. Uh, one would assume over a over a year than it was in, in 2007 because there's simply that many more drivers there. But uh, yeah, no, I, we, Victoria here, Shane, uh, we we. Um, 
put our second car into a insurance in Vancouver for our daughter last year, and it was a $250 hit because it was in Vancouver versus Victoria. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference that can that's apparent there between geographical regions. But places like Kamloops and Kelowna that have really grown since 2007 will probably see that gap narrow between the other urban centers. Yeah, I think they absolutely will, and that's going to factor into any of these potential savings. I think they're going to be wiped out pretty quickly. Uh, let's continue our discussion on ICBC and some other things. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL and continue our discussion with Keith and Richard right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Accountable to you. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry uh, and continuing our discussion about ICBC. Uh, one of the things about the, the the cost and the nuances of this thing and and one of the sort of sub-context stories of this is uh, is the driver penalty program and the driver risk premiums. Both of those are going to increase 20% this year, 20% next year. And that's certainly going to have a hit. And I, could, I think you could make an argument that's where bad drivers could potentially really take it across the chin. Richard? Yeah, because that's not just uh, your history, right? It's if you get uh, a ticket, uh, distracted driving, impaired driving, excessive speeding, uh, they are really heavily penalizing IU for multiple infractions in that regard. And it makes it incredibly prohibitive. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I think on your second distracted driving ticket, there's like a $2,000 plus penalty that's applied. You know, that's... I just renewed my basic ICBC insurance plus the upgrades that I have, and it was like half that in Victoria just for that penalty. So Mm. you have these significant driving infractions. That causes issues in terms of whether you can afford to actually drive your vehicle or not as well. So, And then apply that also to the changes to ICBC, and you're seeing these really substantial hits. Uh, on people who are, as the government is now classifying them, bad drivers. So, Keith, here's the million-dollar question. I know last week you said that uh, when they make these changes, the NDP will take ownership of ICBC in a very real way, and this potentially could be a, a millstone around their necks. Now that we've seen the details and as people are sort of grappling with understanding uh, what happens here, and then a year from now when they start seeing those changes uh, in the actual money they're paying out, what will be the impact as far as the voters' reaction to the party of the day? Well, I think it's going to be controversial because once you once you boil everything down and get forget the government news releases, uh, it's going to be very much more complicated now for people to figure out their insurance rates. And then you throw in the fact that your rates are going up starting in April, uh, which is a few months before the changes take effect. And you factor in all these things like where you live, uh, how old your kids are, who's driving your car. Uh, it's hard to see how many people are actually going to financially benefit from this in, compared to what they pay right now. And that's why I think the government's news release was so misleading yesterday, by focusing on today's rates, when in fact it, it, the comparison should be on what next year rates are going to be, which are going to be higher than this year. So I think ICBC is going to become very controversial uh, in, uh, in, in a different way uh, going forward, because again, we're seeing our rates increase every year. And I don't blame, this, you know, I don't blame the NDP for this. The, the car insurance industry is going through a transformation right across North America uh, with, uh, it's inescapable uh, to, to uh, point to the fact that it costs a lot more to repair automobiles, uh, modern automobiles, than it did 20 years ago with all these electrical systems. 
It is just a fact of life, and these insurance companies are sort of grappling with this. But one thing that has to be done, and the NEP is probably going to wear it a bit, is you do have to um, incentivize uh, drivers to drive better and to be less dangerous. Don't yeah. be distracted. Don't speed. And there's going to be a lot of people caught. As Richard says, the, you know, $2,000 penalty is going to hurt. And it's going to be interesting. I mean, you don't want to ask Rick McCandless this when you have him on. Is there a fear? And I think Richard asked E.B. this yesterday, that people just simply won't insure their vehicles because it's so expensive because of their driving um, behavior. And I, to be fair, I think that you're seeing that argument play out uh, in Metro Vancouver and half a while just due to the affordability crisis going on down there. And that's going to exacerbate that situation for sure. Uh, final thought on this one to you, Richard. Do you think there's going to be a voter backlash or no? Yeah, the one big thing here is what the Liberals are going to do on this issue. I spoke to Mary Polak yesterday, who's the critic on this, and they are heavily leaning towards privatization. She wouldn't say those words, <laughs> but all indications are that they believe the NDP, and if they were in government, I assume, would move towards privatizing ICDC. They didn't do it in government. A lot of this is on their watch as well. But that would be a really uh, interesting debate in the election campaign around, do we like the current model of ICDC, or do we want something like they have in Ontario, which is a private system? That would be a real difference, obviously, in terms of policy. It would be really interesting, I think. Although I'll note, Ontario is up with BC in the top three insurance payouts in, uh, right. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the country. So factor that into the discussion. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left. Maybe just a quick uh, check-in with both of you on, on the ALR report that was tabled uh, this week. Uh, some interesting suggestions in there governing perhaps the, the size of homes built in ALR land, uh, the removal of the two-zone uh, ALR status now to that sort of omnibus one-zone. Uh, Keith, what, if anything, did you get out of that report and what changes might be coming? Well, the report was, it was um, not a surprise at all. It was handed off to a committee headed by Vicki Huntington, who was like in lockstep with Lana Popham when they were in opposition about ALR changes. So absolutely no surprise. The NDP wants to go back to the way it was, which is to get rid of the two-zone um, uh, rule uh, and to probably check uh, people who own farmlands' abilities to do much more than farming on their land. So we're going back to the old system, no question. Uh, that's what uh, Lana Popham and NDP advocated for in opposition. They're really against the Liberal changes, and they're going to undo them, which is, again, not surprising, given that uh, that was in their campaign platform. All right. Uh, final word to you, Richard. Yeah, I think on this, uh, you made the point about restriction of homes. It's something that uh, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver has been calling for. You know, especially in Metro Vancouver, we're seeing a lot of enrichment, these massive mega homes on farmland, and basically the only reason they own the agricultural land is to have these homes. So I think that would be an interesting step if the government decides to listen to Andrew Weaver on that one. All right. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break uh, to the bottom of the hour here in Inside Politics, and uh, we'll rejoin you on the other side, uh, touch base on a couple interesting issues. Among them, uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is going to run in Burnaby in a federal by-election, and uh, David Eby releasing an interesting letter on money laundering addressed to Andrew Wilkinson. We'll touch on those topics and more uh, with Richard Sussman and Keith Baldry right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. 
Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Global BC's Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, just before we went to air, David Eby uh, released a letter written to Andrew Wilkinson basically saying he wants him to waive cabinet privilege in all documents related to money laundering. Uh, I spoke to David Eby just before we went there and asked him if, asked him if he thought there was any reason the Liberals would say no. Uh, this is what he had to say. Well, personally, uh, I, I think they would worry about uh, about us using it, about the new government uh, using it politically to hurt the Liberals. Certainly, their record on this file was very poor, in my opinion, again. But in order to provide them with some sort of assurance around that, uh, we've agreed or we've suggested that we would keep all those documents confidential. And in that context, I can't see why they wouldn't uh, allow us to access that information. Keith, what do you think? <laughs> well, so on the one hand, Evie admits that they could use that uh, to inflict political damage on the Liberals. On the other hand, he's saying, "But we're not going to do that because we're, you know, we're nice guys." Um, <laughs> I, I've never actually seen anything like this before, uh, ever. Uh, that uh, uh, the that the one government asks one party t- uh, saying, "Look, we've got we want some documents. We know are going to make you look bad, but don't worry. Trust us. We're not going to make them public." Um, I don't think Wilkinson's going there whatsoever. I mean that, uh, and I, I just still a, a bit of a mystery why they need sign off from the previous cabinet to make some government documents public. I mean, the I would think uh, par- Parliament's supremacy is supposed to rule out uh, over everything. And right now, the NDP is the government. David Eby is the Attorney General. They are the cabinet. They have cabinet power. Um, still, I've been asking a question on this for some time, why they need um, permission from people who are no longer in power to make public certain documents. But I find this, uh, I think it's a bit of a political gamesmanship on the, on the part of David Eby, and I don't think Wilkinson's uh, necessarily going to take the bait. Yeah, and you'll note even the letter itself, there's some interesting language there. I mean, it makes a case for, uh, we don't want to duplicate, uh, we want to get these documents and make sure we're not doing the same work twice. Uh, and then there's a dig in there about, uh, you know, unsuccessful or failed efforts in the past. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, the language, you're right to point that out, Shane, because they mention in the third paragraph of the letter, Eby does, that uh, former Minister Rich Coleman, who was in charge of gaming, said on CKNW, uh, that uh, the government did everything we could to crack down on money laundering, and now Edie's basically saying, prove it, prove it. If you're going to go out in the media and say that, show us the documents to prove you did everything possible. You know, Keith mentions Wilkinson has nothing to gain uh, by releasing these documents. I think he gets hurt by not releasing the documents, yeah. because it's going to be known publicly now that this letter is out. And the reason why I'm guessing that it was sent out is so that the public knows the letter exists. And if Wilkinson says, I'm not doing it, then the public will immediately say they have something to hide. Yeah, I, yeah, that was my thought too. Keith? Yeah. Oh, it, it might. But they also may think, you know what, this is a political stunt, and then the public's more focused on other issues than, than this particular this particular one. Uh, now, Wilkinson himself, uh, he wasn't the guy at the heart of the whole casino money laundering controversy. No. Um, um, if he wants to throw Coleman under the bus, I suppose he could uh, release some of these documents. But I think uh, party unity, caucus unity, may, may cause him to say this is completely a stunt by David Eby, and he can release whatever documents he's got already. He doesn't need my permission to do anything. 
And I think that's going to be his response. All right. Uh, let's go to the Burnaby federal by-election news this week that uh, NDP federal leader Jagmeet Singh is going to pack up and uh, grab a moving van and head west and run uh, in Burnaby, uh, ostensibly to get a seat in the House of Commons, uh, which raises all sorts of interesting questions, uh, and even some provincially, considering there was a number of provincial NDP MLAs at his uh, launch announcement. Uh, and, of course, now we have the fun job of sort of trying to read the writing on the wall or sift through the tea leaves and try and determine exactly what happens here. Uh, obviously, a bit of a risk, Keith? It is a risk, but he had to take a risk. He's got to get in the House of Commons. He had to find a, a path in there, and that's that's a, a seat that was won by the NDP, but not by a great margin, uh, only 547 votes. I grew up in that riding, and I can tell you with the riding uh, boundaries changed, the west side of that riding is traditionally more liberal conservative than the east side, which is a which is an NDP stronghold. Uh, it runs from west to east and, uh, and the south part of Burnaby, and historically, again, the west side elects the old social credit party or the BC liberals, and the east side is NDP. So uh, by-elections, low turnout usually. Um, Singh's got to mobilize the troops. He better hope the by-election is not in the middle of a municipal election campaign because Derek Corrigan, the NDP-affiliated mayor in Burnaby, is in the fight of his life to hang on to the mayoralty race, and he's going to be calling in all his markers uh, to, uh, to, uh, from the NDP to support his campaign. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would still think the odds would favor Singh winning this thing because, uh, again, it's, uh, he's got the most motivation um, to win. And it's been speculated by more than one that the Liberals would love, don't want him to disappear at all from the national stage because he's not improved the NDP's chances federally. He's low in the polls. He hasn't connected with the voters. And he's a drag on their fortunes in Quebec. And Quebec is really where this election is going to be decided. And I think the, the federal Liberals would love Jagmeet Singh to remain as leader. And if it means winning that seat, fine, then win it. But uh, they don't want him to leave. And the pressure on Singh to quit would be enormous should he lose this particular uh, by-election. But uh, I think at the end of the day, the odds favor him to probably squeak out a victory. And it was the most Metro Vancouver of reactions on this, Richard, with the immediate questions. Uh, can he afford to buy or rent there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Keith and I were watching this together, and I think we were both surprised when Singh announced that he was going to move to Burnaby South and run there in the 2019 uh, general, like the federal election as well. I think we both expected that he was going to announce the by-election, if he won, be in the Commons and run closer to home. Well, he's now going to call Burnaby South home, and, and we were all joking on social media, and Keith and I in the office about, yeah, but where is he going to live? Housing <laughs> <laughs> prices in Burnaby South are crazy, like so many places in Metro Vancouver. Lots of people pointed out when I tweeted it that he's a, a well-off lawyer in, in, in his previous life, so he probably could afford to buy something. Uh, but <laughs> we will see what decision he makes on that. Uh, when Sonia Deal, our colleague at Global, asked him the question, he dodged it in terms of what his accommodations are going to be. So we'll have to wait and see. But I do find it interesting that he's making a long-term commitment to the riding, considering he's not from B.C., doesn't know the lay of the land, he doesn't particularly know the issues well on the ground. So that's a lot to ask of somebody to learn very, very quickly. But if he does win and he sticks around as the leader through 2019, pretty good for B.C. to have a federal leader uh, based and representing the province, I think that can only be good for British Columbia. Yeah, I think he has to kind of show a long-term commitment. You can't exactly admit you're going to parachute in. I think that would hurt him in the long run. No, I think you're right, Shane. Uh, Keith, uh, back to Jagmeet Singh again. One of the more interesting... Uh, issues in that particular riding, both provincially and federally, is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. How's that going to play out, considering Mr. Singh? Well, you know, I, 
know, the, it's the north end of Burnaby that's ground zero to Kinder Morgan. That's where the terminal is. South Burnaby is south of there, so it's not right in the riding. Uh, you know, public opinion poll after public opinion poll shows there's actually a majority of support for that pipeline, like a, a 60-40 split, including amongst people in Metro Vancouver. And like I said, I'm from Burnaby South. I would say, judging from the reaction of my old neighbors and relatives there, it's again, it's not a slam-dunk issue one way or another. I expect he's going to raise it as an issue, uh, but I think he's probably going to be talking more about housing, which is a huge issue. I mean, which, point out we were joking quite apart from finding a place to live we'll even find a place to rent in Bur- in south burnaby because the rental crisis is a very acute in burnaby mm. um and it's uh, i think that's an issue that's more on the voters minds right now i think the kinder morgan controversy as that camp cloud gains notoriety and people view it as an eyesore i think the worm may have turned on that particular issue in burnaby that i don't think a lot of people like the fact that there's this protest camp set up somewhat illegally within the municipal boundaries so it's uh, I, don't, I don't think kinder morgan's going to be as big an issue as as housing and affordability continue to be all right quick final thought to both of you i'll start with you richard uh, mike farnworth uh, rolling out his red light cameras 140 of the most dangerous intersections in the province uh and then further adding that uh, they're going to take a look at that data and then turn the worst of the worst of those cameras that were in those the cameras in those intersections into basically you know catching speeders as well as red light runners which has raised the interesting issue of photo radar and i i find it slightly amusing i mean i like mike he's a good guy but it's like <laughs> it's slightly amusing watching him bristle every time someone throws the word photo radar his way he just kind of loses it i remember the first scrum uh, my wife lisa used it from cknw said, come on, Mike. And he's like, no, it's not photo radar. (laughs) (laughs) I think the big difference between this and and photo radar is photo radar, you don't know where it was, right? Hidden in vans and around corners and would catch people off guard. Here you have the knowledge that you better be prepared that every single intersection with a light could be armed with a speed gun and catch you for speeding. I think it's admirable. Crack down on speeders. You shouldn't be speeding on the road. We have crazy crashes in this province. We obviously have an out-of-control insurance uh, corporation that in part has to do with a massive increase in crashes. So I think people now know to be warned. These, these lights are going to be turned on, and uh, they can catch you speeding at any point. <laughs> it also speaks to political branding, like the HST photo radar itself carries some of that, doesn't it, Keith? It, it does. It's a, it's a negative term. But I think Richard's right. I think um, people don't like speeders. And, and the problem with photo radar in the 90s, it, exactly correct, it was this hidden little thing that you got the sense you were getting trapped unfairly. Uh, these speed traps around blind corners and this type of thing. And that's not what's going to be a play here. I think over time people will adjust and realize I'm coming up to, to an intersection with a camera and I better slow down. And uh, th- that will, uh, again, it's all part of changing drivers' behavior. If we suddenly see, though, a huge collection of revenues uh, in terms of fines, that's where farmers got to be a little careful because if it's suddenly branded as, a, branded as a cash cow, that was sort of the undoing of... Well, you still there, Keith? 
I'm still there. I don't know where that was. Yeah, that was weird. A wave (laughs) crashing on the shore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Did you want to finish that thought, Keith? Well, yeah, just I I, I agree with Richard. I don't think this is going to be the big uh, bugaboo that it was in the 90s under photo radar. It'll be branded by its opponents as that, but uh, uh, I think as time goes by, it's not going to be as controversial as it was uh, a decade ago. Awesome stuff. Uh, Gentlemen, thanks so much for your insight. Uh, uh, Lots of good stuff to talk about this week. Uh, Good to have you on. Look forward to chatting again. Take care, Shane. There we go. There's Global BC's uh, Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, one of this province's leading authorities in ICBC, Richard McCandless. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Uh, pleasure to be joined by my next guest, who's a former assistant deputy minister with the province, along with a former chief information officer. So that's where he took an interest in ICBC. He's carried that over to become uh, probably one of the leading authorities in the Crown Corporation in this province. Uh, Richard McCandless joins us now. Good morning, Richard. Uh, good morning, Shane. How are you? Good, how are you? I am well. Uh, let's just dump into the ju- jump into the deep end here. Uh, we uh, saw a plethora of changes uh, rolled out by Minister Eby yesterday. Uh, there's a lot of fat to chew on there, but uh, this is also a crown corporation that's wallowing in red ink, uh, and these changes apparently revenue neutral. So uh, w- how do you sort of read the tea leaves on this thing? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, I read it as part of a continuum. The the. In the spring, the uh, the government put out this public consultation about uh, the rate design at ICBC. We're talking about the basic rates, the compulsory program. And uh, it had some problems with that survey they did because they, they missed the opportunity to educate the public about how rates are actually set and the impacts. All they did was put out some ideas and say, what do you think? So the uninformed public gave them uninformed answers. But... So now they're now they're going ahead with most of these proposals uh, to what they say make the whole rate system more personalized. But it, it's part of a continuum because <clears throat> this is supposedly good news. The government thinks this is good news because they say two-thirds will benefit and one-third of current rate payers are going to get hammered. And uh, these are the either high-risk or, or inexperienced drivers, and to me that's kind of code for new drivers. And so they're going to pay a lot more. Um, so this is, they think, good news because, um, which seems to be the rationale for doing this, that the public has this perception that that they're paying too much and the guy down the street's not paying enough. So, so the government is acting on that perception because um, I haven't seen the facts to back it up. Yeah. And and then the bad news will come, which will be the annual. Uh, annual report for ICBC for last year, which is overdue, uh, and then the rate hikes for the coming year. Yeah, that's interesting that it is that it is overdue. I mean, we're aware of uh, what David Eby called a dumpster fire at ICBC, and uh, the nuance of this particular argument around the changes is, and this whole thing about bad drivers paying more, good drivers paying less, is they're using today's rates, which won't be the case in in 2020, to the late 2019, when these changes roll in, and we're a year, perhaps two, into into rate changes for whatever that might be. Uh, Richard, as you as you look at the financial situation which you have for years at ICBC are we facing uh, pretty significant rate hikes yeah I think we're going to see another good rate increase excuse me for the coming year but 
until they can until the caps on pain and suffering which have already been announced in the legislation has gone through that allows them to set regulations to do that um, but that won't come into effect till uh, April 2019 so um, for the current year that we're in and probably for the next year there the costs will still be escalating pretty significantly and we'll have to cover that with rate increases or else icbc will um lose even more capital they're they're the key to all insurance companies cost canada is to keep a major capital reserve and icbc the previous government um, allowed the reserve to be uh, basically fitted away to to subsidize the rates keep the rates too low um so now we're that's the it's much more. It's much worse than a dumpster fall. I think that's that's putting uh, not making it sound as serious as it is. Oh dear. Um, ICBC is on the verge of going broke, going insolvent, and then all the cost increases will hit the taxpayer, and that's what the minister of finance is really worried about. When you look at uh, what's going on now, uh, what's going to happen in the next year or two, and and some of these changes, uh, do you worry that it's it's going to sort of be this thing where uh, it it becomes something a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy as far as ICBC's financial woes, as people just stop insuring their cars, for example, or uh, you know what I'm not going to bother getting the license, or it becomes kind of a fiscal decision for people. Well, sure. I mean that's one of the longer term consequences. Uh, we certainly don't want to get in a situation like the United States where a lot of people are driving without insurance because um, it's so expensive. <clears throat> we do not want that to happen, and, and in fact, that should not happen if it's a compulsory system, uh, at least for the basic insurance. Um, the government has an obligation to keep the rates affordable and to keep the coverage at a, at a, at a satisfactory level um, if they're going to make it compulsory. What's your take on the argument about, uh, and, it, and it seems to kind of this argument flares up every time we get into the, get into the uh, you know the crapper with ICBC news is this argument versus sort of public versus private yeah. insurance. Well, I don't put much stock in that. The, the cheapest rates and it's the biggest costs are around the type of coverage. We in BC had the, were the last the holdouts to for the tort system, which is in simple terms, you can sue for pain and suffering and uh, you can sue for unlimited amounts, whatever the judge decides. So um, other provinces have put caps on that or don't allow it, period. So Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and the basic in Quebec doesn't allow pain and suffering suits. So their rates are the cheapest, and, and their coverage is just as good as, if not better, than ours. So public-private is a, is a red herring. In fact, private... If the public system is managed correctly, the rates will be cheaper and the coverage will be better, and that's what you see in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Yeah, and Saskatchewan's uh, Saskatchewan system is one of the ones that David Eby uh, definitely wants to pattern ICBC after. So, well, uh, not quite. <laughs> yeah, but he, he doesn't he, want to go to the full no fault. No, he certainly doesn't. Uh, Richard, in, in your eye, I mean, you've, you're an expert on this thing. If you remove the politics from it and you look at it from your your experience, dies. How do you write the fiscal ship and make this thing work at ICBC? Well. One thing the government has not been talking about is greater enforcement. I don't hear them talking about asking the RCMP and the municipal forces to, you know, put more police on the street to enforce the current laws. Um, I don't hear the government talking about paying ICBC for all the services the government's been extracting from them. Uh, and there's at least a couple hundred million annually there, that, including driver's licensing and 
some discounts that are ordered by government but uh, not paid for by government, you know. Um, so there's some things they could do that would reduce the number of crashes much more directly than this indirect approach of, uh, of uh, making it more onerous if you have an accident. Um, the, and finally, the, the biggest saving they could make is to go to the full no-fault. Now, the trial lawyers don't like that. And they have good arguments about fairness for victims, but um, there are. It is clear we don't. Have, we're not reinventing the wheel here. It's been done, and it and it pays off by much cheaper rates and and as good coverage, except for the pain and suffering. All right. Uh, final question here, Richard. As, as we see this new system uh, run in front of BCUC and then potentially if there's a thumbs up there, uh, get phased in in September of next year, what do you think the reaction will be of people as they kind of get their heads wrapped around some of these changes and then, of course, the rate hikes that are going to come? I think it's going to be a shock to people a year from now when they when they get their new um, printout from ICBC. They're, I was just thinking about myself and my wife. I mean, I've got the full discount. She's got almost full discount. But now my our car is going to be rated on the basis of a combined mine and hers. So our rates will go up, and then we'll get some discounts on other things. But, you know, it's hard to – I think overall there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be kind of surprised and, and shocked by uh, the rate increases. Yeah, I think that there will be too, uh, especially once they explore some of the nuances of the situation. Richard, thanks for your time. Always appreciate uh, talking to you and hearing what you have to say. Yeah, thank you very much. There we go. There's Richard McCandless, a former senior official with the provincial government and has since become uh, probably one of the leading authorities in ICBC in this province. And that was it for the radio version of Inside Politics. Uh, we're going to continue on with our podcast specials now. Uh, just before the show went to air, Attorney General David Eby gave me a ring. We had a conversation with him about both ICBC and today's letter sent to Andrew Wilkinson. We'll listen in on that talk right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Time to take a listen to that conversation with Attorney General David Eby, taken just before the show got started on both ICBC and this letter he sent to Andrew Wilkinson on the money laundering front. You've put pen to paper a letter to Mr. Wilkinson asking that he waive some uh, confidentiality uh, concerning the previous government's uh, documentations around money laundering. Why? convention in place that prevents us from accessing a convention that we respect that prevents us from accessing the cabinet documents of the previous government. Uh, this could be briefing notes, uh, presentations, reports prepared by third-party business firms like Ernst & Young and others. Uh, and uh, that convention stops us from accessing that information. What I've written to Mr. Wilkinson to ask is, uh, is first of all, to assure him that we would keep uh, whatever documents uh, we were able to access confidential. And uh, in that context, would he consent to us accessing any documents that were produced, any reports or briefing notes for the previous government um, around money laundering? And the reason for us wanting this information is we're moving into uh, the second part of the Peter German uh, casino uh, work that he did. Uh, and we're doing a lot of policy work. We're doing a lot of, uh, of drafting of regulations and laws. And if there was research or work that was done for the previous government, we don't want to replicate that work. We don't want to duplicate it. Uh, we'd like to use it uh, to inform the work that we're doing right now. And so we're asking uh, that they release that. Uh, there may be nothing, frankly. And, and, uh, and personally, I suspect, actually, that there is very little. 
but Rich Coleman was in the media, and he said that they did everything they could to stop money laundering. Uh, and if that's the case, if there are reports, if there are briefing notes, if there's research, if there's draft legislation, we'd like to access it in order to speed our work along. From your perspective, is there any reason the Liberals would say no to this request? Um, well, personally, uh, I, I think they would worry about uh, about us using it, about the new government uh, using it politically uh, to hurt the Liberals. Certainly their record on this file was very poor, in my opinion, again. Uh, but in order to... Uh, to uh, provide them with some sort of assurance around that, uh, we've agreed or we've suggested that we would keep all those documents confidential. Uh, and, uh, and, and in that context, I can't see why they wouldn't uh, allow us to access that information. Is there any politics at play here, Dave? I'm already seeing Twitter reaction to the letter going out to uh, some people saying, oh, you put them in, the, in, a, in an interesting political situation. If they say no, it looks like they're hiding things. It's a brilliant political move. Did that factor into this at all or no? Well, there. I mean... Certainly, there are politics around this file. I think that, uh, from my perspective, their government did a very bad job of handling money laundering. Uh, Rich Coleman has been in the media saying, uh, in fact, they did everything possible. But regardless of those politics, um, we really want to access uh, any uh, research or work that was done uh, for the previous administration so we can use it to inform our work as we reform this to ensure British Columbians can have confidence in our gaming system. Any idea of how fast you want uh, Mr. Wilkinson to get back to you with a yes, no, maybe so? Uh, it'd be great if he got back uh, as soon as possible. Um, but uh, I will note that we've asked for other reports to be released that were cabinet confidence, uh, a liquor report uh, and uh, and uh, a report related to ICBC, and we've never received consent. Uh, the big distinction, though, between those reports and these is that in those we wanted them released to the public. Uh, and these ones we've agreed to keep confidential. All right, Dave, uh, just switching topics here, I want to talk a little bit about uh, yesterday's ICBC announcement. One of the nuances in the ICBC changes announced yesterday is it's it looks at cost savings in, in today's system. Uh, but when we look at a rate change, Dave, does, is that going to reframe this whole, uh, you know, good drivers pay less, bad drivers pay more thing? Yeah, so uh, if if the changes that we proposed yesterday were in place today, uh, two-thirds of drivers would see a uh, reduction in, in their insurance rate or, uh, or basically no impact at all. Uh, and the vast majority of drivers would see a slight shift in less than $50 in either direction. Um, this is really um, about uh, the people at the extreme ends. Uh, this is about people who are driving uh, recklessly uh, or who are, have uh, multi-year safe driving records who haven't been adequately recognized for their safe driving habits. And those are the people who are going to see an impact regardless of any rate change that's coming in, uh, in uh, uh, December. Uh, ICBC is going to the Utilities Commission uh, for a rate hearing. And our goals around ICBC have been really clear, which is to get these uh, rate increases as low as we can and, and ultimately uh, eliminate and, and, uh, and in some hopeful future day uh, have rate decreases potentially for British Columbians based on the savings that we're trying to generate right now through the major reforms we're doing. Um, this reform uh, that we announced yesterday um, is, is uh, basically going to make the biggest difference to, uh, to the groups of very safe drivers and the very reckless drivers who are going to notice the biggest impacts. But if, we're, if rates go up by a significant amount, we don't know what those numbers are, but we do know ICBC is in, in a bit of a fiscal hole, so one assumes they're going to be uh, somewhat significant. If those rates go up by a significant amount, uh, will in fact, even with those savings, will some drivers not pay more even if they're driving well uh, compared to what they're paying today to what they could pay, say, in, in 2020? Yeah, so with the, with the rate increase uh, scenario, uh, which is very likely, obviously, for ICBC uh, in December. Uh, 
what drivers are going to see is that their insurance rates are going to, regardless of the rate increase, more closely reflect their personal driving history. Um, and for example, uh, if you uh, are loaning out your car to somebody and they cause an accident, that will affect the person who caused the accident, it will affect their insurance, it will not affect your insurance as the owner of the vehicle. So what we've done is we've really tailored insurance closer to the actual driver. Uh, I uh, have never <laughs> promised and could not promise uh, to British Columbians, given the state of ICBC that we inherited, that they would not see uh, rate increases. The rate increases that we were looking at were in the neighborhood of 30%. What I promised is we would not do 30% increases. Uh, and uh, and I do believe that we are going to deliver affordable uh, 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 insurance for British Columbians with the reforms that we're putting forward, and that the rate increases, uh, because of the reforms we're putting forward, will be a fraction of uh, what would have happened if we hadn't acted quickly. All right, last question. Uh, there's obviously a lot of nuances and detail in what you announced yesterday. Uh, just from sort of a, an education perspective, uh, assuming that everything gets cleared through BCUC and all the dominoes fall, they begin to be phased in in 2019. Is there going to be some kind of uh, massive sort of public education program just to start filling in the blanks here? Because in the 24 hours since you made the announcement, I'm seeing tons of people pointing this little thing out and that little thing out and how does this work and how does that work? And it seems like there's a lot of, lot of unanswered questions out there. Yeah, there's going to be, uh, without question, uh, some concern among drivers about how this will affect them personally uh, based on their own driving records. Uh, and their insurance brokers are the ones who are going to be able to walk them through this. We've been working very closely with the insurance brokers from British Columbia so that they're able to edu- educate their clients about, uh, about how these reforms are going to uh, change and impact uh, their insurance premiums and the decisions that drivers are going to have to make when insuring their vehicles. And, uh, and certainly those are the folks who are going to be able to provide the best information. I can also say that uh, it's critically important uh, in terms of sustainability of insurance in our province. And it doesn't matter whether we have a public or a private insurer, that uh, it's critically important that insurance rates be closer tied uh, to the risk that drivers actually present on our roads based on their driving habits uh, and their experience. So uh, that's what we're doing. And, and that was uh, what yesterday's announcement was about. That was Attorney General David Eby. We're going to take another quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, BC Liberal House Leader Mary Polak. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. On the phone right now, the BC Liberal House Leader, Mary Polak, joins me. Mary, welcome. There's a lot of buildup, of course. The good drivers are going to pay less and bad drivers are going to pay more. We've heard that a lot in the months leading up to yesterday's announcement. We now have some details to put to that. Uh, First and foremost, as you kind of go over what was unveiled yesterday, uh, your thoughts on on the whole package? Well, it really doesn't do anything to improve the performance of ICBC, which means that the pressure on rates overall is still going to be for them to rise. And I note in various interviews yesterday, Mr. Eby certainly didn't want to talk about how much that might be, but I think it's clear from the inaction on the other portions of it that uh, without any dramatic changes, those rates are going up. They're going to go way up. Yeah, and so we're going to, uh, I mean, I thought sort of the interesting thing yesterday was uh, the way he said, well, in today's rates, someone would save this, other one would pay that. But uh, if you're looking at a 10, 15, 20% rate hike by, say, 2020, uh, this new regime and its math is going to look markedly different than the examples we've seen so far. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's tinkering around the edges. Um, here we are in British Columbia, and what are the two unique factors about our car insurance? Well, one, uh, we have an outdated system that isn't used hardly anywhere else in North America. Um, the other is that we now pay some of the highest rates of anywhere in North America. So I don't think it takes uh, much to get to the conclusion that what needs to happen is a complete overall. We can't continue to be tied to this idea of a government government monopoly. It just isn't working. It's causing us higher rates, and we've got to start looking at other jurisdictions and what they do. Before we get into how do you fix ICBC, I mean, everybody and their dog is going to turn around and say, oh, but uh, you guys were in power for 16 years, rates increased, it was a runaway train, uh, you're in large part responsible for this. Your response to that? Yeah, except it wasn't a runaway train. It was the same pattern that it had been um, for previous governments as it was for ours, that ICBC for a time would project that it was going to be okay. Then it would come in and say, oh my goodness, we're having trouble. There'd be changes made. It would be quiet for a while. And then sure enough, they'd be in trouble again. Um, ultimately, none of the reports, recommendations, all of those things that governments over the years have dealt with, uh, none of them got at the heart of the problem. Government monopoly doesn't work over time, functioning insurance system. And we've seen that proven all over North America. We're just the last holdouts who want to tie ourselves to this uh, this old model. Okay, well, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, people have been dancing around this public versus private uh, thing in, in various forms of government through the ages. Are, are you now, or are the Liberals now, advocating to privatize this system? Here we are in British Columbia, and we're paying some of the highest rates, and we're we're not getting the kind of service that they're getting in other places where they pay less. Um, we have a chance now. Take a look at other jurisdictions. And it isn't that all-or-nothing proposition. I think that's where we as British Columbians of, of various governments have been trapped in this idea that it has to be full privatization or full government monopoly. It doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing proposition. Other jurisdictions all around North America use hybrid models of various types and they pay cheaper rates, and they get a lot better service. How would a hybrid model work in the context of what we're doing today? I mean, there is to some degree, very small, mind you, a hybrid model now. You can do private insurance uh, off your basic, but not the basic itself. So how do you open up the basic? Well, there's various ways of doing it. But for example, you can divide up what things government is properly responsible for. One of the things I think that should be the property of government or should be the the place where government operates is something that we've actually uh, put out there to um, the insurance corporation and that uh, and to motor vehicles is the licensing and registration. I think there's things like that you could bring in and do better as government. And then there's other things um, that really the private sector would be far better in dealing with. But I, you know, it doesn't have to come from me. Let's take a look at it. What I would hope, what I would hope, and I don't think we'll see it, um, I would hope that the NDP government facing such dramatic challenges with ICBC in an ongoing way would announce that they are actually willing to be open-minded and look at what other jurisdictions are doing. I don't believe they will. I mean, they are rigidly tied to this model. It was brought in by their hero, Dave Barrett, and they're convinced that uh, it should still operate in 2018. Well, um, let's see if they're willing to have an open mind and take a look at what other places are doing. Do what's best for BC, not just what your ideology is telling you. All right. So why are governments rigidly tied to this model? I mean, this this government certainly is, but uh, the previous government was in power 16 years and seemed just as tied to it as well. 
Well, again, you try to follow the recommendations um, that you get from various reports from people within uh, the corporation. You hope that their projections are going to be correct. I mean, unfortunately, from what I've seen over the years, their projections were constantly failing. Um, here you are. I think it's been proven. Um, it's just not working. So why? I think uh, there were also some myths out there before that have also been disproven. I mean, I grew up hearing that if we got rid of ICBC, God forbid, we'd all be paying way higher rates. Well, now we look around us and say that can't be um, that can't be the reason for higher rates because here we are with one of the highest. So I think a lot of myths over the years have been debunked and it's time to take a fresh look. Uh, I know from speaking to David Eby today, uh, he won't say what the rate hikes are going to be, Mary, but he did say, well, we promised not to bring in rate hikes of 30%. So one assumes that uh, it's open season on 29% and and under. Uh, Any idea what we could be seeing? It could be that high. Uh, Who knows? Uh, What I think should disturb people is that whenever uh, government ever uh, says, well, we're going to limit it to this much or that much, it means that taxpayers are going to foot the bill for the difference, right? It means that you are finding another way to keep ICBC whole. So whether or not government kicks in to keep rates from going beyond what would be tolerable for the public, it's still costing you money in your pocket. It's just a different pocket they're taking it from. And at the end of the day, it doesn't solve the problem. ICBC needs to be overhauled. Um, there are places where insurance works. Let's do what they do. Uh, last question. There's a lot of, I mean, the broad discussion is going to be around rates and, and this uh, this program that, uh, that was rolled out. But if you look in the minutia of this thing, there's lots in there to worry about. Uh, there's different charges around strangers driving your vehicle. There's the new formula around the list of people driving your vehicle. There's the updating of data that, would, uh, that you know, I think is going to increase rates in places like Kamloops and Metro Vancouver. Uh, so there's going to be other things, rates aside, or in how they calculate it, that's really going to cost people. I think. There's potential for that, absolutely. Remember that what you're doing is is not so much saying, uh, hey, everybody's going to pay less. I mean, we all want to think we're the good driver, right? We want to think, well, that's me. I'm the one who's going to pay less. I'm a good driver. Reality is it isn't just about um, your own driving record. There's all these different factors that are going to play into how much you pay. Uh, Anytime you make these changes, uh, the, what you tend to see is people paying a lot more based on other factors that they didn't think of. And there's a lot of this buried in the NDP's announcement from yesterday. Of course, they want it all to be good news, but uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of good news in there. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate the time. That's PC Liberals House Leader Mary Polak. And that's it for today's version of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests today, Keith Baldry, Richard Zussman, and Richard McCandless. We'll see you again on Radio NL on Inside Politics next week. from CHNL in Kamloops. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.